Turn with me to Colossians 1. This is our fifth week together in this series. It's our, it's our summer scripture series. And, um, and we're walking through the book of Colossians. And then at the very end, we're going to also check out Philemon uh, for, for probably the last two or so weeks of, of the series. Uh, and, and like most Pauline literature, uh, which, are, which are most of the books uh, of the Bible that the Holy Spirit wrote through the Apostle Paul, we call that Pauline literature. He starts Colossians 1 with the gospel followed by a detailed kind of unpacking of that gospel and then moves on to the implications of that gospel. And, and so once this foundation is laid, we can then speed up through the implications of what was laid. And I say that to assure you that, that we will not be in the same book and in the same series uh, looking at Colossians until like Christmas. Uh, I want to just assure you that we will make it out of chapter 1 at some point, probably today. We'll, we'll get to make it out of chapter 1 finally, but we are walking through this, ver this book verse by verse, word by word, idea by idea, and we are looking at what God and Paul has to say to us here in the scriptures. And so I just want to let you know, we will speed up just a little bit in the coming weeks. It'll get a little bit quicker. I know we've spent, we'll spent five weeks now just in the first chapter, but it'll get a little, little bit quicker as we go along. And so just so you're uh, kind of prepared for that. Now, if you have any background here with me at all, it's, it's, it's no real secret that my preference is to preach through passages, chapters, books of the Bible. And now I'm not against topical preaching. There have been times, obviously, that we've done some topical preaching. And we've, we've addressed the topic, well, topically. Um, and so that's kind of redundant. But, but in, in the end, I'm, I'm a little more comfortable just coming out of a book. And there, there are several reasons uh, why I do that. First of all, everybody has this kind of intrinsic, like, like gifting, uh, I guess I would say, maybe, or this, uh, this, this, this talent that leans, leans them in a direction or, or a passion. And, and so there are guys who are primarily evangelists, and, and they're going to tend to make everything about the mission. And then there are guys who are primarily like disciplers, and they want to make everything about discipleship. And then, and then according to your passion, you kind of line up in, in a certain direction. That's just sort of what happens uh, when it comes to uh, preaching and, and, and leading and teaching and guiding in this way. And, and if you're not careful, you, I think you'll not prepare your people well, um, not only for this life, but for the one that's to come by failing to preach the full counsel of God. And, and so the thing that I like about preaching through books of the Bible is it forces the issue, right? It will make me teach on things that I don't like off the top of my head go, hey, we need to hear that. Like it makes me actually, uh, it, we, we, we do need to hear that because it's in the scriptures. And, and, and maybe it's culturally not as popular or maybe we wouldn't say it in a certain way here in, in 2019 or whatever, but you just, we just kind of stay away from certain topics. Well, if you preach through books, you're not going to have that luxury because the text will dictate or demand that you address it. And so that's why I like preaching through books of the Bible. It forces the issue and makes me preach to you the full counsel of God. So today we're going to be in uh, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 24. So if, you, uh, if you've already found it in your Bibles or your scripture journals, that's where we're going to begin. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen behind me in a few moments. Um, so, so having, let me just set it up for you for, for those who are just jumping in. Again, this is week five, so uh, we're, we're a little bit, we're, we're toward the very end of the first chapter. So having introduced us 
to the supremacy of Christ in creation in verses 15 through 17, and Christ's supremacy in the church we saw in verse 18, and the supremacy of Christ in reconciliation, which is what we talked about uh, just last week, which is verses 19 through 23. Paul now gives us a supremely magnificent perspective on his resulting ministry. Because once you hear the gospel, once you know the truth, once you meet the Savior of the world, not only should it move you to action, but there is a responsibility there. So let's start by reading some text, then we're going to go back and break it down. So let's go ahead and read through our full text for, uh, for this morning. Starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. That was one sentence. Way to go, Paul. All right. Uh, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which, Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In the last verse, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So with these words, Paul gives us four aspects of his ministry model, which, which I believe ought to be the industry standard of every person who engages in Christian ministry. Now you might be thinking, all right, so, so we're talking about Paul's ministry. So you might be thinking like, whoa, 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 let's, let's pump the brakes, pastor. I am not an elder. I am not a deacon, I am not a pastor, I am not a teacher of the scriptures. How does this apply to me if I'm not in Christian ministry? And if you thought that, or if you are thinking that, that's a fair question. I mean, after all, we, we, we want the word of God to move us to action. So, so how am I going to move to action if this isn't my lot in life? And I will admit, let me just admit to you right now, that, that if I were teaching this passage in front of a group of pastors or church leaders, it would be a little bit different. I would be teaching it a little differently. However, what does it say in 1 Corinthians 3.6? Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. And what does it say in 2 Corinthians 5.18? All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is an all-inclusive us, everybody, all people who know him. We are all ministers of the gospel. We all have a role to play in the great commission. We all have something to learn from these different aspects of ministry that Paul's employing right here. And so, so I want you to lean in on this, and I want you to figure out how these four things that he's going to lay out are going to apply to you. So the first aspect comes in verse 24. Right? Paul is suffering in ministry. That's the first thing. Suffering in ministry. He writes this, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Okay, stop. Listen, I know the train just left the station here, but, but this, is, this was a really confusing thing to say to the Colossians, and, and it should be to you as well. You rejoice in your sufferings, Paul? You rejo you're happy that you're suffering? Was Paul some kind of sadist? Like, you have to wonder that. Like, what in the world is, is or was he just so spiritual that he didn't care about trivial things like freedom or, or hot food or, or com creature comforts? 
Was he so consumed by scripture that he was oblivious to what was going on around him? No. None of this is true. Paul loved these things just like the rest of us. But here's the thing. I want you to write this down. Joyful sacrifice is giving up something you love for something that you love even more. Joyful sacrifice. Joyful suffering. It's giving up something you love for something you love even more. And Paul loved seeing people come to Christ even more than he loved his personal freedoms or creature comforts. He loved it. He loved, and if he had to give up the latter to get the former, he'd happily do it. He would happily do it. So here's what I know, church. You rejoice in suffering when, when you love what you gain through suffering more than what you're giving up in suffering. That's, that's how you rejoice in suffering. When you love what you're gaining through suffering more than what you're losing in suffering. Without the love, the, the joy, you'll never endure. Now, I've heard this compared sometimes to childbirth. So before uh, the birth of our first child, people always told me, oh, this childbirth, like it's, it's, it's beautiful. <clears throat> Having spent time in the delivery room of three childbirths, I can tell you, there isn't really anything beautiful about the birth process itself. Honestly, it's kind of scary. There were things I saw that would make the movie Saul look like a Disney Pixar film. I remember looking around at the doctors, like the first time especially, like looking at the doctors, and I'm wide-eyed, I can't believe what I'm seeing, and I'm like, yo, are you guys seeing this? Because doctors, can you, I, I, I'm, when does the beautiful part start? Where, where does it get beautiful? Who would go through all of this voluntarily and then have the audacity to call the process beautiful? I would guess that almost every mom in here would enthusiastically say, I would. They would wave away the thought of their suffering and say to their child, if that's what it took to bring you into the world, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Totally worth it. Paul said this to the Colossians. He said, this is how I feel about you spiritually. I rejoice in my suffering because of what I know it is producing in you. I'll do whatever it takes, pay whatever it costs for you to know Jesus. Paul knew that his suffering would bring good to the church, and so he approached it with a joyous attitude. He embraced the inevitable suffering that comes with the territory. And let me just simply say this. Suffering ought to be the expectation of every minister of Jesus Christ. And why do I say that? I know that sounds like ominous and foreboding and that, that's like, that's not the good news I was hoping to hear this morning. I, I get that. The psalmist said this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Uh, that's in Psalm 34. Jesus told his disciples in, in, in the book of John uh, that, that the world would hate those who minister in his name. It says, if you, were, uh, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. 
it was prophesied that Jesus, uh, of Jesus that he was appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, it says in, in the book of Luke. Paul spoke of how the rise and fall of many come through the ministry of the gospel that is preached. He said uh, that to some, the message comes as an aroma uh, from death to, de- to death. Um, and, and for others, it comes as an aroma from life to death. Some like the gospel message and some don't. That's just kind of the way it is. When people receive the gospel message, there is great joy in their receiving it. But when they reject it, there is there's great pain and difficulty and discouragement. In light of this, Paul said of the Christian ministry in, in 2 Corinthians, who is adequate for these things? So while we are entrusted with the gospel and sharing it with, with other people, whether that brings about fruit or suffering, it is only the Lord that can give us joy in those times of suffering. And, and now, now here's what happens in the second part of this verse, because we just kind of hit the first part for a second. But here's, here's what happens in the next part. Paul takes it to the next level. All right, so, so now rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And, and, and then he says, then he goes on, and he says, and, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, on the surface, this is like a staggering statement. And, and actually, let me, just, let me just let you know this. This is one of the most debated verses in Scripture. Whole books have been written on the interpretation of verse 24. So, so what could possibly be lacking in Christ's affliction? Didn't Jesus say from the cross, it is finished? Hasn't he done everything necessary to save us? So why would Paul say that something was, was lacking? What does that even mean? So, so first of all, I'll just give you like Bible study 101 here. Whenever you see a passage uh, such as this one that's a little odd, it's, it's a little hard to understand. You're reading it and it kind of doesn't sort of make sense with what you already know and, and what you've already seen. It's a good principle to, to help interpret those texts in light of clearer texts on the matter. So, so you kind of go look at other things that speak to it. And, and here's what's clear to me from Paul's writing is that he sees nothing lacking in Christ's death. Paul sees nothing lacking in Christ. Even earlier in this very letter, he praised the accomplishments of Christ on the cross. Paul's not meaning that, that he in some way helped with the atonement. That he, he, he knows that it is Christ's solo work. Instead, Paul is recognizing that there is a connection between between Christ and the church. And that connection is through suffering. The connection's through suffering. So let me give you an example. Before Saul's Damascus Road encounter, if you remember uh, how the story goes, Saul was on the road to Damascus whenever he uh, was knocked on the ground and blinded uh, by the light of God. And so... Before his Damascus Road encounter, Saul had been making Christ suffer in the people he was persecuting. Right? So Christ's first word to Saul kind of made this clear. It, it, said, it said this in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Saul was persecuting the Christians. But in doing so, he was persecuting Christ in them. Right? Like follow this train of thought with me. So Jesus was being persecuted in the bodies of his followers. However, immediately after Paul's conversion, Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now Paul is going to suffer. 
And if you know anything about this story, you know that this is true. If you know anything about Paul's life, you know that he suffered over time. A lot of bad stuff happened to him, but Christ would suffer with him. And that is a glorious truth, that that Christ is going to suffer with him, alongside him, in him. Let me give you another hard and rather unpopular teaching. Like, this this is not the teaching that's going to help build a church. Suffering is the means by which God has ordained bringing salvation into the world. As hard as that is to swallow, suffering is the means by which God has ordained bringing salvation into the world. And why is that hard? Because we want it to be prosperity. Man, God, can't you bring salvation through prosperity, through blessings? Can't you pour all of this out on us and let the world see how blessed we are? That will do it. But Jesus told his disciples right before he left, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Just like the Father sent Jesus into the world to bring salvation through suffering, so Jesus sends us into the world to extend his salvation through suffering. Let me ask you this, is that the price that you're willing to pay? What did it cost you to to receive the gift of salvation? What did did it cost you to receive the gift of salvation? Nothing. Jesus paid it all. But are you willing now to do what it takes for people all over the world? Let me bring it closer to home. Are you willing to do what it takes for people in Greenwood, South Carolina to come to know Jesus? Church, Paul knew his sufferings were for the good of the church and that they brought him a special closeness with Christ. Every blow that fell on him also fell on his master, and in doing so, it bound them together closer in suffering. That's what that verse is telling us. So let me move on because we've only gotten one verse in. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Um, Verse 25. Uh, Actually, let me give you the next point. Uh, The next point, uh, the next aspect of Paul's ministry is is ministry is service. Sorry, uh, serving is ministry. I I said it backwards. Serving is ministry. Serving. So verse 25, here's what it says. Uh, Of which, now he's talking about the church, of which, Uh, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So let me give you a couple couple of thoughts on this. Uh, In the Greek, the word minister, uh, it actually comes uh, from a word where we get the English word deacon. All right, so it it, it fundamentally has this idea of service. And and, and really, in fact, it's it's actually should probably be translated as servant. It's, It's more often in some translations, servant instead of instead of minister there because servant is more appropriate. Uh, for instance, in Acts chapter 6, it uses the same word. It describes the serving of tables, uh, the giving of food to others who are waiting to be fed. In, in John chapter 12, it uses the same Greek word. It's used of Martha who was serving food for the guests in her home. Jesus actually uses this word to describe the complete dedication of himself to the task the Father has called him to do. In Mark chapter 10, it says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So this, that's the word that we're talking about here. So, so when I became a minister, a servant of the church, according to the stewardship. So the picture of a servant is one who gives of themselves. A picture of a servant is one who gives of themselves for the benefit of others. And that's the word that Paul is using to describe his relationship with the church. Paul considered himself to be, uh, to, to, to be one who did what was needed, to, what, what needed to be done for the well-being of the church. And, and in this sense, Paul was made a minister. He was made a servant. He was made a deacon. He was made to be a servant for the church. The church didn't exist for Paul. Paul existed for the church. He had a different mindset. So let's pause for a little introspection here. Is that primarily how you see yourself? Is that primarily how you see yourself? Do you, do you see yourself as existing for God, for, for, his, for, for the bride of Christ, the, the, the church? Do you see yourself as a servant of the church or, or a beneficiary of the church? Do you come to church on Sundays, on, on, on other, you know, whatever night? If you go to another church, you might have Sunday nights or Wednesdays or other meetings. Do you go to church primarily saying, what can this church do for me? Or what am I supposed to do? What role am I supposed to play in the church? Listen, there's nothing wrong with benefiting. benefiting. We want to be a blessing to you and to your family today. But which is primary? Are you primarily a servant of the mission of the church or a beneficiary of the ministries of the church? Just want to throw a little introspection out there. You can think about that and uh, get back to me later. The, the other phrases that Paul chooses in this verse all help to reinforce the same idea. Paul was made a minister according to the stewardship uh, from God that was given to me. So how about this word stewardship right there? That's, a, that's an interesting word. We probably, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that word. But, but maybe you don't really know what it means. Uh, maybe it, it's not, it doesn't sink in what it was actually talking about. Literally, this is describing the law of the house. All right, There is a master who owns the house. But in his absence or, or in his involvement with other matters, he delegates the responsibility of administering the law of the house to a steward. The steward doesn't own the house. The steward is simply given responsibility over the house. We kind of talked about that last week. Jesus is the pastor of this church. He may have called me to be the steward of this church, to be the shepherd, but he is the pastor. All right? That some, like, let me give you another example. Some of you uh, are, are, are in high school. Uh, maybe you're, you're in college. Um, you're always looking for, for money over summer, right? Like, that's always the thing. I remember that. Like, always looking for a way to make a few bucks over summer to take back to school with me or to, to do some different things. And, and, and we've had some people, like, like some, some young ladies who are looking to pick up extra cash by, by babysitting. So, so here's the thing. When you go into a new house to babysit, the parents tell you all about where the food is. They tell you where the pajamas are. They tell you when bedtime is. They kind of give you the whole list. They lay it all out. They tell you everything that you need to know while you're there. You are a steward of their house. You may have some authority, as, as the Apostle Paul did, but fundamentally, you are merely in the house to help carry out the rules and, and, and the procedures established by the parents of the home. You're a steward of the house. 
So, so Paul saw his ministry simply as this. God had called him to be a steward of the household of God, the church of the living God. He was to take care of the church, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of those in the church. And he makes it clear that his focus is on the well-being of others in verse 25 when he says the words, for you. I became a steward for you. It's for the good of the church. His toil and his labor and his struggle and, and his imprisonment were for the good of others. This is Christian ministry, church. This is what it looks like. It's, it's self-sacrifice to carry out the plan of God for the sake of other people. Can you appreciate how, how different this is than the way of the world? Can you appreciate this? I mean, Jesus, Jesus told us that himself in, in Matthew 20. But Jesus called to them and said, uh, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, he gave his life as a ransom for many. We live in a world where people shove and fight and push to get themselves to the top. They want to lift themselves over everybody else. They want to be at the top. And then hopefully, they want to make it so that everybody else has to serve them and they don't have to serve anybody. But this is not biblical ministry. That's not what Jesus says. The Christian ministry is one of service and self-sacrifice. And again, let me stress that, that these words... are not only applicable to those that God has called to serve in full-time ministry. They, they are 100% applicable, but they're not only applicable to those who God has called to serve in full-time ministry. Understand that this perspective is required for all believers. Just as a pastor is called to service, the members of the church are called to service as well. This is what Peter says. He told the scattered churches, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God may, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's out of 1 Peter. In other words, God has given us a measure of grace that we are responsible to use and to display in the service of others. He's given that to us, each and every believer. He's imparted that to us. And, and also, y'all, you also have to note that Paul's words are very specific. They're, they're very specific. You may think that because you are a believer and, and because uh, other believers are, are serving others, that by some relational aspect, because I am a part of this, I am a part of the body, that, that in some way, for some reason, um, that you are also serving. Because other people are. Somehow that, that's, that sort of by osmosis maybe trickles down to you. That maybe by attending a church that serves the homeless and fights for the less than, that you somehow get a share of the credit as if it were even for that at all. It says this, stewardship from God that was given, he's very specific, to me for you. He gets specific. It's not just about the universal church at large, it's about you, each and every one of you, individually and 
specifically. This is specific language. God just doesn't have this great big global mission that he assigns to the church. He also has an individual assignment, a commission, if you will, an area of stewardship for each of you. He has a purpose for your time, your talents, and your treasures in the church, a commission for you. And here's the thing. I I look at a commission from God um, from the perspective of if you don't do it, it won't get done. Why? Because he's called you to do it. He's called you to step out and do it. And, and so when preparing this message um, this week, I was, I was uh, obviously taking a break on Reddit, as one does, and um, just looking around and, and seeing, seeing what's there. And I thought about this old uh, meme that's been around for a while. It's, it's this old thing. It's, it's called you, you Had One Job. Maybe you've seen it before. Uh, maybe you've, you've heard of it or, or, or seen it uh, at some point. But it, the idea is it, it, it presents these, uh, these fails, these things that, and, and the idea is like you had one job. You had one job to do one thing, and, and you, you done messed it up. And so, um, and so I want to just show you a few of my favorite ones that I saw. You had one job. One job. What, what else is there? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's very helpful, uh, given the instructions on the doorway. What was another one? I like that. I like that. That's, that's classic, classic warehouse etiquette right there. Now, this, one, this one's for everybody over the age of, like, 30 in the room. Um, if, you're, if you're under 30, you may not know who those two people are. That's okay. Uh, that's Eddie Murphy. That's Nick Nolte. Somebody messed up. Somebody done goofed. What's that? I think there's one more. Oh, that's a good one. I thought that was appropriate. Oh. <laughs> that's good. That's good. So, so I saw these, 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 you had one job fails, right? This was somebody's job. This was somebody's commission. They were supposed to go out and do the right thing, and they did the wrong thing. Somewhere in the body of Christ, one of these might be you. You had one job. God gave you a specific gift with a specific leading. He brought you to a church that loves and serves the community with, with, with actions, not just with words. Is that a coincidence? You have one job. He wants you to go out and do it. He's very specific. The language is very specific here. In fact, in, in Scripture, uh, if you don't use it for the purposes God gave it to you for, God considers it stealing. Just think about that for a second. Paul in Romans 14, he, he called himself a, debt, a debtor to the Romans to bring the gospel to them. Jesus had given him a commission. He was now a man under obligation. I literally owe it to you, and if I don't get it to you, I am reneging on a debt. It's, it's stealing. Think about that for a second. If you don't do what God's intending for you to do, if you don't use what God's given you to use. So let's, let's move on. Uh, we're we're two, two verses in and I got like four minutes. Here we go. Um, number three, here's the third part of ministry, ministry of proclamation. Ministry of proclamation. This is the core of all Christian ministry, proclaiming Jesus Christ. 
All right, at the end of verse 25, Paul spends a bit of time describing what his ministry would entail. And it's nothing more than this, than making known what the Lord has revealed to him concerning Jesus. He says, uh, to make the word of God fully known at the end of 25. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is in which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I wish I had more time to break this down, but I'm going to give you as much as I can. The task that the Lord has given to Paul uh, was the task of taking what the Lord had revealed to him and making it known to the world. That was his job. Taking what God had shown him and revealing it to the world. He calls this revelation the mystery. Now, when you hear this word, don't think about Sherlock Holmes or, or, or... Nancy Drew, I don't know if that might reson- not, not resonate with, again, anybody under the age of, like, like 30. How about Scooby-Doo? Scooby- eh. PJ Masks? I don't. These people, like, investigate murders and thefts and other crimes. But when you hear the word mystery, I want you to think about this. Think about a turn of good fortune that was totally unanticipated. That's a mystery. A turn of good fortune that was totally unanticipated. So here, think about this with me. Think about your uncle who you barely knew. He lived halfway across the country. You remember seeing him maybe like twice in your life growing up, maybe at a family reunion or, or a wedding or a funeral or something. Like, like you saw him at some point. Well, well, he recently died, sorry, and he left a huge estate and inheritance to you. All right. Yeah? All right. So, so why did he give you so much? You barely knew him. Well, it's a mystery. Think about the phone call you received from a competing company or a business uh, offering you to come and work for them at three times the salary that you're currently making. Sure, things weren't going, like, too well, but, but you really weren't thinking about leaving. How, how they even heard about you and, and why they offered you the job, well, that's a mystery. Think about the letter that you received in the mail. It's from your father who had purchased some stock for you like 20 years ago. And he was planning to give it to you when he got older. He purchased 100 shares of Microsoft at its IPO price of $21 in 1986. Now those 100 shares are worth $800,000 plus. It's all yours. Why your father sent you the letter today, well, it's a mystery. This is like the mystery that Paul's describing. He describes an unforeseen good fortune that brings incredible blessings. And it was hidden for ages and generations. This mystery was hidden. But, but, but now, Paul wrote of his generation, uh, the mystery had been revealed to his saints in verse 26. What exactly is this mystery? It comes at the end of verse 27. Here's the mystery. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When Paul says Christ in you, he's talking about Christ in the Gentiles specifically. He's talking about Christ in us. These Gentiles had no clue that such good news was coming for them. They knew of the Jewish people. They might have heard something about their Messiah, but they didn't know all that the Messiah was going to do for the Jews. They did, they, little did they anticipate the abundance of blessings that they would receive through the Jewish Messiah. But now these Gentiles were on the receiving end of a far greater treasure uh, uh, than an inheritance or a great job or original Microsoft stocks could ever be. They received Christ in them. 
So let me break that down. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ. What is the mystery? Jesus Christ, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. The one who created the entire universe, we already read about in Colossians 1.16. The one who sustains the universe, Colossians 1.17. The one who rules and reigns over every creature, the one who will, uh, who will come to have first place in everything. But it's not just Jesus Christ, it's Jesus Christ in you. Again, he's very specific. Jesus Christ has come to dwell among us. And if he is in us, we are partakers of everything that Jesus Christ is. We are the benefactors of everything that Jesus Christ has done. Was Jesus crucified? Because he is in us, our sin was nailed to the cross. Was Jesus made alive? Because he is in us, we were also made alive in him. Was, was Jesus now exalt, exalted to the right hand of God? We too have been raised up with him. Will Jesus someday be revealed for all the world to see as sovereign king of all? We too will share in his inheritance. It's the mystery we're talking about. Jesus Christ in you, let me give you one more, the hope of glory. Apart from Jesus Christ, we have no hope. But in Jesus Christ, we have a hope of entering into glory. We saw this hope in verses 12 through 14. Jesus Christ has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his kingdom. Jesus Christ has rescued us. He's transferred us into his kingdom. He has redeemed us for our sins. From our, from our sins, Jesus Christ has forgiven us all uh, of our sins. Jesus Christ, in you, the hope of glory. That's our hope. That's the hope that we are to proclaim to our friends, to our families, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, neighbors, whoever we come in contact with. That is the message that Paul preached. That is the message that we preach. We, we preach Jesus Christ. We preach Jesus Christ and the fullness of his salvation. We preach, preach Jesus Christ and the blessings that will come if you only believe in him. And we preach the hard stuff too. We preach Jesus Christ and the terrible consequences of refusing to believe. Jesus is your biggest hope. He's returning someday as judge and he will set all things in order. So crucial and central is Jesus to our faith that he... He consumes our proclaiming ministry. Look at verse 28 and see how Paul puts it. He says, uh, it's, it's him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature to Christ. Notice that we aren't preaching some special philosophy. Notice that we aren't preaching relo- religious ceremonies or rituals. Notice that we aren't preaching certain statutes or rules that you need to follow. Notice that we aren't preaching some type of religious experience. Notice that we aren't preaching how you are to keep being defiled from, keep yourself from being defiled. No, we are preaching a person, a Savior. He is all you need. This is Jesus. There is nothing you need more than Jesus. You need him. We have to proclaim that with our words and with our lives. Let me give you the last point. We're running out of time today. Jesus' ministry was made possible through the power of God. That's point number four. Sorry, Paul's ministry was made possible through the power of God. Ministry by God's power. Paul writes this in verse 29. This is our last verse. Uh, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Two words in this passage describe the intensity of the work. Paul begins the verse by saying that he toils. The Greek word here describes uh, a labor to the point of fatigue. Ministering to others is fatiguing work. 
The second word that Paul uses in this verse is translated as striving. We see it here in our version as struggling. It can also be translated as striving. The Greek word here uh, is actually where we get the word agony from. Ministry can be an agonizing work of labor. When we accept our role as ministers of the gospel, charged to steward the good news of Jesus Christ, there is always more to be done. The job is never finished. This is how so many heroes in the faith lived their lives. They took a page out of Paul's book and they toiled for the Lord. They struggled and they strived to the point of agony and exhaustion. Luther, uh, Luther worked so hard that many days, according to his biographers, he fell into bed. He worked to the point of exhaustion for the gospel. D.L. Moody, his bedtime prayer on occasion was said to be, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. John Wesley rode 60 to 70 miles many days of his life, and he preached an average an average of three sermons a day, even on the days he didn't travel. Paul's ministerial drive is a model for all of us. We will never have an authentic apostolic ministry unless we are willing to work to the point of exhaustion. And and apart from the Spirit of God giving strength to the work, it's impossible. You need the Spirit of God to strengthen you. Even though Paul labored and though Paul exerted himself to the point of agony, he knew that there was a greater reality working within him, a greater power at work within him. Paul knew that it was God who was at work within him to accomplish all that he needed to do. And God wants to work within you to accomplish some incredible things, both within the church and outside in the world. Our ministry should involve suffering and sacrifice, serving the church and others, proclaiming the gospel and relying on God's power. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your servant, Paul. We thank you for the message that he's brought to us. And God, I pray that we can model our personal ministry after what we've seen here in this, in this letter to the Colossians. God, I pray that each and every one of us will recognize the importance of suffering, the importance of sacrifice, how it connects us with you, how it brings us together. I pray that we will recognize how how amazingly important and crucial it is for us to serve. To serve others. To lay ourselves aside. And to use the gifts, the talents, the skills that you've given us. To serve. And may we proclaim your name, your glory, your majesty, your power. with With every word we speak, with everything we do. Finally, God, may we work to the point of exhaustion. May we serve you to the point of exhaustion and agony because we know that the hope that is set before us, we know that is for the good of you and your church. And we know that it's actually the power of the Spirit within us that's going to keep us going. We love you so much, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray.